Okay, take your Bibles tonight and turn to the 107th Psalm once again. And uh, we'll kind of work our way through this. And I was thinking this is kind of based upon when I was reading through these verses and praying about how to approach this. There's a, a line in there that tells us to give thanks to the Lord. Then I thought about what Preston preached Sunday morning about grumbling and negativity and that type of thing. And that formed this question in my mind. Why would believers ever have to be reminded or commanded to give thanks to the Lord? First Thessalonians chapter 4. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Why does he need to say that to us? We'll look at some other verses that kind of come up with this idea. Why would we have to be told to be thankful? Why in the world would we have to be reminded to be thankful? What is wrong with us, in other words? That here we are, the recipients of God's salvation, His love and His mercy. And think of all of the things that He has done for us in the past and what He's doing now. And then by faith, what He's going to do in the future and why do we have to be commanded to give thanks? Why do we have to be reminded to give thanks? Well, I took these verses and we're going to answer that question because we're holding up the mirror of the Word and we're going to take a good look in it tonight. And we've got to be careful that we're not like the Apostle told us that we don't want to be the person who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what manner of man that he is. And uh, we want to look into it and we want to see who we are so that we can make some changes. There are some times when you may uh, get up from taking a nap, you think everything's fine, but you got a little bit of bedhead or something like that that you don't see until you look in the mirror. Then you're embarrassed that uh, you might have been around people. Well, it's always good to look in the mirror. I would encourage that. And um, as you think about the mirror of the word, Consider all of this. So let's go to Psalm 107, and we'll look at uh, verses 14 through 16. And we're going to kind of see that the reason we don't give thanks is because we tend to be forgetful. Forgetfulness causes that. And I think that uh, we live in a generation, and I'm sure this is not true for you, but a lot of people it is. If it didn't happen in their lifetime where they can remember it, it doesn't matter. And so uh, we talk about learning lessons from World War II or the Holocaust or the Great Depression. Ah, that's way before my time. I'm only interested in now. I don't want to hear what Abraham Lincoln said or George Washington. Who cares what they say? Or even at this point, Ronald Reagan. That's been a long time ago. Who cares about that type of stuff? And so what happens is we don't learn from history and so we are doomed to repeat it because Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes there's nothing new under the sun that's why we should study history but far too many people they don't care about it if it didn't happen in their life but even as believers when we think about what God has done I think about that old hymn when upon life's billows you are tempest tossed when you are discouraged thinking all is lost what does it tell us to do count your many blessings have you done that in a while do you really think about how blessed you are 
Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. And the hymn writer is reminding us that if we don't stop and pay attention, we'll miss the blessings and assume we're not all that blessed, which isn't true. Read Ephesians 1. And it also means this, we will make the assumption God is distant, far off, passive, apathetic, and not working until we begin to pay attention and see that He is working and He is doing things in our lives. But we're forgetful and that's the reason we don't give thanks. It's way back stuck in our memory somewhere and uh, we can't remember it. There were two men they were sitting in the living room of, their, uh, of one of their houses, and uh, they were talking, and one of them said, have you been any place good to eat lately? And the other guy goes, oh, man, I have been to this place. You have got to go to this. It's the best food I've ever had in my life. And the other guy gets excited. Oh, that's neat. Where is it? What's the name of it? And he goes, oh, I can't remember the name of it. And the guy goes, really? You went and you ate there and loved it that much, and you can't think? And he goes, no. Uh, it's the name of a flower. And the other guy goes, marigolds, dandelion, lily. No, no, it's that, it's that expensive one, and it's red and it has thorns. And the guy goes, oh, you mean roses. And he goes, yeah, that's it. Hey, Rose, what's the name of that restaurant we went to? And uh, I think some of us have some spiritual amnesia or maybe even some spiritual dementia. And we forget what God has done. And we have to have reminders about that from the Word of God. Well, as we said, this psalmist is writing this psalm after Israel has been back for some time from exile. And I get the idea it was long enough that they had kind of forgotten about it. That they were sort of drifting. And when they said, oh, we'll never forget, kind of like people have said about some of our wars some of our disasters, people that have given their lives, and we forget about them before too much longer. And so the psalmist wants to stir up their memories and to show them what their God has done for them. Not a bad idea, is it? Here's what it says. Verse 14, Psalm 107. Then they cried, these captives in exile, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. But wouldn't that be enough to make an Episcopalian shout? Wouldn't that be enough for all of us to be thankful for the rest of our lives? I mean, what more does God have to do? But he goes on, verse 14. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. That makes me think of Psalm 23, right? The shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. And broke their chains in pieces... In other words, he liberated them. Verse 15, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Why would I read it like that? Because it's got an exclamation point after that. This is exciting. God would be involved in us. And we could yawn. And we could be bored. And we could be forgetful. What is wrong with us? As the people of God. It's not right. 
And it's not normal. See what I mean? So he says in verse 16, For he has broken the gates of bronze. You couldn't do that. And cut the bars of iron in two. You couldn't get out of your cell. You couldn't get away from your handcuffs. And even if you did, you couldn't get through the gates. Except God set you free. It reminds me in Acts, I think it's the 12th chapter, when the apostle Peter is in prison. And uh, the angel comes and touches him, jabs him in the side, wakes him up, and says, get up, get your cloak, and come on out of here. And the chains fell off. You think Peter was sad about that? You think Peter, when they walked through and the gates opened and the guards didn't even know what was going on, you think Peter was going, well, this is a rotten day, you know? Not at all. In fact, when Peter gets to the house where the church is meeting and knocks on the door, the servant girl, Rhoda, sees him, and the Bible says that she is so full of joy, she runs back in where the church is praying for Peter's release and forgets to let him in. Why? Overcome with joy. What's wrong with us that we forget what God has done for us? And so that's what we want to spend a few minutes talking about tonight. Why do we do this? What's wrong with us? Well, let's think about this. Number one, we forget what God alone has done for us. You see, I think sometimes we get the idea that God needs us that we cooperated with God, that we helped God out, that God was really close to getting some great things done, couldn't quite do it, and then we joined his team, we volunteered, we made a decision, we signed up, we came in, and God said, oh, finally, I can get something done because they are here. And that is so antithetical to what the Bible teaches about salvation or anything else. And notice in verse 13, then they cried out, to the Lord. Why'd they cry out to the Lord? Because they couldn't liberate themselves. And in the same way, you and I can't save ourselves. We can't set ourselves free. It has to be the Lord that does this. And He saved them. He saved them out of their distresses. You see, if we take credit for anything, if we say, well, I made a decision, well, I did this and I joined up and I'm a part of God's team and that's the way a lot of people act and that's the way a lot of people preach, well, when we do that and we take credit for what God has done, the problem with that is, number one, it's not true and number two, it gives us a sense of pride. God did everything he could do. Isn't he lucky that I responded and that I did my part? You don't have a part in all of that. This is all the work of God. And the bad effect of this is that it puts more emphasis on what we do than what God has done. There was a story one time about a guy, he was a Methodist, and he wanted to join a Baptist church. And so he was talking to a relative. And he said, uh, I have to be baptized by immersion to join your church? Yep, I sure do. And he said, well, what if I went into the baptistry tank up to my ankles? Nope, that won't do it. What if I went in up to my knees? Nope, that won't do it. What if I went in up to my waist? Nope, that won't do it. What if I went in up to my chest? Nope won't do it. What if I go in up to my shoulders? Nope, that won't do it. What if I go into it up to my eyes and my forehead? Nope, that won't do it. And the guy said, see, I told you that it's only this part of the head that matters. Sprinkling, that's where they sprinkle, right? 
And you know what happens is we start thinking like that about what God does. If I do my little part, I make a big deal out of my little part and a small deal about what God has done. And that's why the Bible emphasizes over and over and over, it's not of us, it's not of our works, it's the grace and the power of God and the sacrifice of Christ that saves us. And that's why we find joy and rejoicing in the Lord. I want you to consider some verses that a lot of folks don't think of. Acts 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now listen to this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Wait a minute. I thought we open our heart to the Lord, didn't he? I've seen the stained glass windows. Jesus is knocking on the door, and yet this is just the opposite. The Lord opened her heart. That's what he did for you. That's why you trusted him, the Lord's work. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, look at this, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You know, when you repented of your sins, that was a gift from God. That's the work of God. It's what the Bible says anyway. It's not me. It's what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Your salvation was no accident. And in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the authority, the right, to become children of God, who were born, uh-oh, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Why were you saved? It was God's will to save you or you wouldn't have been saved. So you read verses like that and you realize, what happened? God opened up my heart. God granted me repentance. God appointed me to eternal life. And I was saved because of His will, not my will. He didn't owe me a thing. But in His grace and mercy... He has saved and redeemed me and redeemed you. And if that's not enough to give God praise for, there's no hope for us. Something's wrong with us if we can't be thankful over that. If he didn't do another thing for us, we ought to be excited about that. Just endure this life and then go to heaven for eternity. That's not a bad deal, is it, when you think about it? But secondly... I want you to notice we forget how desperate we were. We had this idea that, I, you know, I was bad, but not that bad. I was in sin, but just a little bit of sin. I was only wading in the mud puddles of sin, not like some of those people who were dressed desperate and drowning in it. You don't know your Bible if you think that. And every once in a while... Good Bible-believing Baptists need to get a dose of the Word of God and remember where they came from. There was a 
song written by Dottie Rambo, the chorus of it goes, Roll back the curtain of memory now and then. Show me where you brought me from and where I might have been. Remember I'm human and humans forget. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. Boy, that's the truth. We forget. In this psalm, it says, He brought them out of darkness and out of the shadow of death. Death was looming over them like a shadow. Now, shadows are real. I heard somebody say one time, the shadows aren't real. Yeah, they are. They're, it's a real shadow, but it's just a shadow. It's only a shadow. Shadows don't hurt you. And the shadow of death is just that. It's a shadow of death, but for the child of God, it doesn't hurt us because death is just what ushers us into the eternal kingdom of God. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Paul said, for to me, to die is Christ, and uh, to live is Christ, pardon me, and to die is gain, just more of the same. It's just a change of address for us. And God delivered these people. They had death looming over them, and God intervened and set them free. We need to remember sometimes we too, we were dead spiritually. Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Which means you were absolutely helpless when it came to doing anything about your sin problem and about your spiritual life or anything like that. You were dead. Dead men can't do anything. God had to raise you to life. That's enough to be thankful for. But also before you were saved, you had physical death looming over you and this is where the world is today death looms over them scared to death that something's going to kill them well i got bad news for them something is going to kill them during covid you know people say well we need to get the vaccine and we need to get all these things so that we don't die well that's fine except for one problem you're gonna die everybody's going to die People die as children and babies. People die as teenagers. People die as young adults. People die in middle age. People die at old age. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know when you're going to die. In fact, frankly, I've seen some people that kind of surprised me at how long they lived. Haven't you seen that? My great aunt, bless her heart, she got under conviction about smoking, and she quit at the tender age of 94. She died two years later. Maybe she should have kept on. I don't know. Probably threw her body into nicotine shock or something like that. I've also seen some other people. I mean, she smoked since she was a teenager. I would have thought she would have died early, but she didn't. She lived a long, long life, outlived all of her friends and a lot of her relatives. But I've seen some other people that you would have expected them, the way they live and their health and everything, that they would live a long time. But it doesn't always happen, does it? Because death looms over all of us, and for lost people, it scares them to death. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? You know what the Bible says about that? In Hebrews chapter... 2 verse 15 and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery 
You know what the devil's weapon is to control the world and to control lost people? Just scare them. Just scare them. And what are they most afraid of? Death terrifies us. And it's only through the deliverance of Jesus Christ that you lose your fear of death because he is the one who conquered death for us. Praise his holy name. You say, are you afraid to die? No. No. I'm afraid of dying because when I think about the way I've seen people suffer in the process of getting to the point of death, not interested in that. You understand what I'm saying, don't you? Man, I don't want to hurt, and I don't want to suffer. I'd rather just, you know, lay down and go to sleep and wake up in heaven and say, how'd I get here? Be surprised by all of it. I mean, that's the way I'd write the script, but uh, I don't get that luxury, do I? But when it comes down just to the point of saying, are you afraid to die? The answer is no. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Who wouldn't want that? To be in a place where there's no more sorrow, no more pain. And sometimes we talk about somebody that dies and, and they're, they're a believer and we say, oh, they missed out on so much. Are you kidding me? They're up there in heaven going, you've got to be joking about this. I'm not the one missing out on it. You're missing out. Come on up here where I am. Physical death. We had spiritual death before we were saved. Then we had this fear of physical death and then we had something else. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, And it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the what? Judgment. I'm telling you, without Christ, you ought to be terrified about facing the judgment of God. To stand before Jesus. You're not going to high-five him. You're not going to run up and sit in his lap. You're not going to hug him like a teddy bear. If you're lost, you're going to stand before him and it will be the most terrifying judge you have ever seen. People tend to get nervous when they go to court. They see that man or woman in that black robe up there. They get nervous when they're talking to the judge, when they stand before the judge. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet if you're lost. Because the Bible says you're going to stand before the judge of the universe. And the final judgment is called... The second death. Notice how this death metaphor just kind of always holds up. The, the spiritual death, the fear of physical death, and then the second death when you're cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Man, you ought to be thankful just for the fact that because of Christ, you don't have to even worry about that. Not even one iota. Because you've been delivered from that. And you're going to face your Lord with joy, not with terror, not with dread. You're going to hear him say, welcome Welcome, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord rather than the frightful words. Depart from me into the lake of fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. Man, that ought to make you a thankful person. Number three, we forget not only these other things we've talked about, the desperate condition we're in and the things that only God can do, but thirdly, we forget the joy of deliverance. He broke their chains in pieces you're free and that's a spiritual 
uh, picture of us. Here we were, dead in our trespasses and sin, bound in the chains of death, hell and the grave, and despair and defeat and all of that. And what did he do? We sing about it all the time in that uh, um, arrangement of amazing grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Have you ever seen a person get saved and be glum about it? If you've had the privilege of leading someone to faith in Jesus Christ, they're never sad about it. They have joy in their lives. It radiates out of them. Think about when you were saved. Did it make you sad? No. It, it sets you on fire. You were so happy and you were so joyful in the Lord. Why? That's what happens when you set people free. If I'd been in prison for decades only to find out that, uh, I mean, innocently in prison for decades and then they find out that I didn't commit the crime new evidence or DNA sets me free I'm not going to walk out of the prison mad I'm not going to walk out of there upset my initial thing is going to be I'm breathing the air of freedom I can go anywhere I want to go I'm with my family again I may get mad later on when I think about what they did to me but that's a different story the initial release is going to be joy and when we get saved when we are liberated from sin it is a happy and a joyous thing have you forgotten what it was like to be saved have you forgotten what it was like to have the burden of sin to be gone? Have you forgotten what it was like to have your soul to be right with God? Have you forgotten the joy that was ringing in your heart when you trusted Christ? Boy, that'll make you thankful. We think about the joy of the Lord, which Nehemiah says in our, is our strength. And no wonder we're so tired and weak and anemic. We've lost our joy. In the Bible... Joy is connected with salvation. And lack of joy is always connected with sin. How come I don't have joy? Because of sin in your life. And being in sin causes... And uh, when you think about joylessness, what a weird word that is. Let's put it like this, a joyless mess to be in our lives. And so many of God's children, instead of living in the joy that Jesus died to giving, uh, give them, they are living in a joyless mess of a life. And they wonder why things are going haywire. They wonder why they can't enjoy what's going on. They wonder why other people are not interested in what they have or what they know or anything like that. It's because your life is a joyless mess. Joylessness is connected with sin. And it... Uh, causes us then to just live normal lives instead of supernatural lives. And here's something else to think about. Joyless believers have little or no impact on the lost, even in their own family. Why? Oh, you need what I've got. Well, why would I want that? Why would I ask you? Why would I have any kind of interest in that? I'll go talk to somebody else who seems to be happy about their salvation rather than somebody who is a sourpuss like you that acts like they've been baptized in vinegar or something like that, right? Joy is so important. Psalm 51, verse 12 and 13, after David got right with God after his sin with Bathsheba, he makes this request, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And notice, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. 
Why aren't transgressors getting saved? Why aren't sinners being converted? Maybe we ought to look at our own life and our lack of joy and we need to trace that back to unconfessed sin and stubborn refusal to be filled with the Spirit and to follow what the Spirit and the Word says and stubbornly going our own way and we're not being a blessing to anybody because of that. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying tonight? I mean, this is something that's important to us. And number four, we forget the goodness of God. Well, I'm just going to put a sailor on that. We forget the goodness of God. How long has it been since you praised Him? How long has it been since you thanked Him? How long has it been since you quit holding grudges against God? <gasps> I would never do that. You'd be surprised how many people do. They prayed for something and God didn't do it on their terms and now they're going to show God they don't going to come to church anymore. They're not going to read their Bible anymore. They're not going to pray anymore. They're not going to give anymore. I mean, they'll show Him. You're only hurting yourself, folks. You're forgetting the goodness of God. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Why would God mess with us? He didn't save angels that fell. He doesn't give demons a chance to repent and be saved. But he does us. And we've been every bit as rebellious as they have been. The psalmist is just overwhelmed that God would be good to the children of men. We ought to be overwhelmed by that too because we certainly don't deserve it. You see, the root of all sin is a suspicion that God is not good. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Well, I'm not happy the way that I am here, so I'll look to alcohol. I'll get high on drugs. I'll get involved in premarital sex. I'll get involved in pornography. I'll get involved in some perversion. I'll rob somebody, and I'll steal from a, from a store. and get, I'll get it myself if God won't give it to me. I'll figure out a way to get it. Why do we do that? Because like Eve, we get the suspicion that God's holding out. He's not really being good. And if I can't get it from Him, I'll get it one way or another. And you'll do that to your own peril, your own shame, and your own despair. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve bit, literally, didn't she? God's holding out on me. So you're telling me that he's not as good as I thought he was, that of all these trees, this is the one that really matters. And she wanted that thing that she couldn't have. She couldn't be grateful for everything else. It was that one thing that ate her alive. The suspicion that God wasn't good. You know, that's why the Bible has to remind us to remember. Psalm 103, 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. You know why? Because we do. We do. And we get the idea that God's holding out on us. That God hasn't done His fair share. After all, I have submitted to Him. Now, you do your part, God, and 
all of this and we forget what all he has done. Oh, my goodness. You're upset because you wanted this and God didn't give it to you. Look in the face of your Savior dying on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, and see if it stands up and it holds up to that. Look at a martyr who has given his or her life for the cause of Jesus Christ and tell them why you're upset with God and why you would hold anything back on Him and why you're not a thankful person. Tell them that. Tell the persecuted Christian who is in prison tonight for nothing more than loving Jesus Christ. Tell them what your complaint is about God. Spurgeon said, Complain to God we may, but complain of God we must not. Why? He's a good God. And we forget God's goodness. And when we forget that, I can guarantee you something. It always, you hear that? I'm being emphatic. I don't do that very often. It always leads to sin. You forget the goodness of God and you will fall into sin. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 16. But they and our fathers acted proudly. Hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. They didn't think God was worthy of it. And they were not mindful of your wonders. They just forgot about them and pushed them in the past. No big deal. What have you done for me lately? That you did among them. But they hardened their hearts and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Hard to believe, isn't it? But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. And Israel is just like us, or we're just like them. God can work miracles and do so many things. But if he doesn't do everything that we want in the way that we want it and when we want it, then we're down in the mouth, we're sad, we're despondent, we are despairing, we're apathetic, and uh, we have no right, no right to act like spoiled little toddlers in the kingdom of God. Too much at stake. Too much at stake for that. And number five, we forget the supreme power of God. And we act like God's up here with a hand grenade while the devil's got an atom bomb. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You believe that? And act like it. Act like it. We're not behind the eight ball. The world is. We're not the ones who are the losers. The world is. We're not the ones that are walking around weak and, and uh, unable to do anything. That's the world. We have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living within us. In fact, you, because the spirit dwells in you, are a constant reminder to the devil of his defeat because the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. No wonder he hates us. No wonder he works against us. But he's already lost the battle and we forget about the supremacy of God. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. And so God liberates his people. 
God protects his people and God provides for his people. Psalm 115 verse 3, but our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. That sounds like power to me. In Daniel 2, 21 and 22, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. And he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. That pretty much sounds like he's in control. That he's not responding to all of this. He is initiating and causing all of this to happen. And the world thinks they're in control. Oh, what a laugh. What a laugh. We know who rules and reigns. Even in these dark, seemingly chaotic times, God is still on the throne, child of God. Rejoice and give thanks to his name. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. In other words, it doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter what the situation is. God is ruling and God does what pleases him, whether we like it or not and whether we understand it or not. Our time of understanding is not now. There's a lot we've got questions about. But as the old hymn says, we will understand it better when? By and by. There's a day coming where all of this, all of this is going to make sense. And you're going to see the greatness of your God when you stand in his presence and see how he has worked from the beginning until the end of time. And we're going to see it all fit together in a glorious, glorious way. Every promise, every prophecy, all of that fulfilled by the work and the hand of God. And then you're going to sing, what a mighty God we serve. And then you're going to talk about all of his sovereignty. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for he hath willed his truth to triumph through us. How does that happen? Because we serve a mighty God who died on the cross, who paid the wrath of God, who redeemed us by being raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God the Father, who sent his spirit to indwell us and all of our sins are forgiven and the enemy has no power over us and we are walking with the armor of God according to the path that he has laid out for us because the steps of the righteous are ordered of God. He himself goes with us everywhere we go. And I'm telling you tonight, you are not the loser. You are the winner because he has already won the victory. Praise his holy name. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as I think about what we have looked at tonight, how can I watch the news and be down in the mouth? How can I read a paper and be down in the mouth? How can I see things happening around me that don't fit my little plan and be down in the mouth? Because you're above all of that. And you're the God who can do what no one else can do. And I thank you for that. Because you save people who would never want to be saved on their own. And see, seem like they're the least likely. But you're the sovereign God. We thank you, Lord, that you found us in all of our desperation. And what you did was enough 
to make us alive in Christ and to bless us with all spiritual blessings and to seat us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and to give us everything we need, all things that pertain to life and godliness, complete in you, lacking nothing, the Word says. And we thank you, Father, that you're the one who is able to bring us the joy of deliverance. Oh, Lord, let us walk like joyful people who have been delivered from the curse of sin, from the domination of the enemy. Let us walk in that joy and gladness. Let those joy bells ring in our hearts once again. And Lord, I pray that we would be a walking testimony of your goodness. You've showered your blessings on us. You've loved us. You've given us rich the richness of your mercy and of your grace. All this in heaven too. And let us walk around where people can see who we are. And what you're doing in our lives so that they ask us questions and we can point them away from us and point them to you and point them to your throne and point them to your grace. And Father, as we walk around on this world, may we never, ever, ever forget and never budge on the fact the world's not in control, politicians aren't in control, and the devil certainly isn't in control, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases all we need to do is line our life up with your good pleasure and you're going to have to do that for us and I pray that you would and fill us with optimism with hope and with joy that we serve the mighty eternal king and we are victorious because we walk in the train of his triumph, the Bible says. So hallelujah, to God be the glory. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.